And uh, honestly, when Jawara first was arrested, I just was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is ridiculous. But I felt like it would be something that would be behind us. Uh, you know, we'll right. go to court, whatever, you know, charges get dropped. I don't know. But I didn't really think that it would affect us in the way that it had. And it wasn't until the hearing in September um, where, you know, we all came down. My mom was there as well. And we came to support him. And we heard the prosecutor say um, that they were offering a 20-year plea. Um, and that's when we, our mouths dropped. This is Lit and Lucid, your after-work de-stress smoke sesh podcast. I'm your host, Lit. And I'm your host, Lucid. And we're going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover the truth and find the balance. Every week, we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe. But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture. So kick back, consume your favorite cannabis products, and get cozy cozy in the the Lit and Lucid lifestyle. Welcome, everybody, to the Lit and Lucid podcast. We are here recording another episode of the show Today, we have a very special guest on, Nyambe McIntosh. She is the daughter of Rastafarian and cannabis advocate Peter Tosh. He is the founding, he's one of the founding members of the Whalers, known for his songs, Legalize It. <laughs> Nyambe is here today to share a very powerful story about her brother, Gerara, who was incarcerated for a cannabis charge and then was sadly beaten while in prison, leading to life-altering injuries that took his life in July of 2020. We are here to learn more about the strong advocacy work Nyambe is doing with the Peter Tosh Foundation and to continue to shine light on the war on drugs. So with that, welcome, Nyambe. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Yeah, we got an important story today uh, to share and, and one that um, you know really brought me to tears earlier when I was kind of looking at your background. It really brought me to tears. And uh, I'm hoping I can make it through. Um, but we normally start our show with uh, asking our guests if there's cannabis consumers and however... Today's story leads us down a different path. So I just thought I'd ask if you wanted to share the importance of cannabis plant medicine and what it means to the Rastafari faith. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, Rastafari was started in the the 1930s, actually, and and it was a um, kind of anti-colonialism, colonialist movement. You know, Jamaica was colonized um, in the early 1800s, late 1800s, and, and pretty much Black people started to become conscious of the fact that everything about their existence was, um, you know, from their, uh, um, their colonizer. And so there was a movement to be a lot more socially conscious, to, 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 to be spiritually connected, and, and uh, they recognized cannabis, um, and we recognize cannabis as a plant that truly healed, you know, um, and, and also allowed you to have a deeper spiritual connection with yourself and, and, you know, the almighty, as we like Mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. And we use that still today. I mean, Jared and I, we do cannabis yoga and that's a big part of our practice is really just allowing the plant medicine to connect you to a higher power. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an important part to kind of bring up here. And especially because, you know, we, we talk about your father and kind of the kind of your father was an outspoken advocate for not just the Rastafari faith, but also cannabis. And he was really a, a, an early advocate in, in all of this. And um, Lucy and I were talking before the show. And, and you know, I, I really wish he was around today because I would ask him, you know, what was it, what, what was it like back then? And, and kind of um, just to think that this is more than 60 years or more in the making 
is just incredible. And the fact that you and I are still having this conversation today is a little, little discouraging um, because a lot of the stuff that your father spoke about back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s um, are all still things that affect us today. And it's, it's sad. It's pretty sad, I think. Um, but, you know, things are on the positive and I think things are looking up uh, more so today than they, than they ever have been. So we'll just start like, talking about, you know, your father and uh, kind of what he was doing in the 60s and kind of brought about, you know, uh, reggae music, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, he was, as you said, a founding member of the Whalers. Bob Marley and uh, Bunny Whaler were also founding members. And um, many people don't know that he was kind of the musical talent. You know, he he taught Bob Marley how to play the guitar, um, and you know, he rode a unicycle. He was he was also <laughs> just just um, well read and and just a very special individual. And once he uh, launched his solo career. He actually, uh, his first album was Legalize It, um, and uh, which was released in 1976. It was actually banned in Jamaica in 1975, and, and they wouldn't really air it or play it on the radio. Um, so he, you know, that fight for um, his activism, you know, started out, and his music started out as a tool and a weapon to really educate, and he was an activist with his music from the forefront of his, uh, the beginning of his musical career. Um, he faced police brutality oftentimes, you know, just for having a spliff or a little, you know, some crumbs of cannabis in, in his hand. Um, he, but although we see him, you know, with a, with a spliff in there, you could Google his picture now and you'll see like tons of pictures with him and a spliff on stage. You know, he, he's gotten kicked out of places. He smoked on the planes. Like he really <laughs> was like, this is what I believe in. And, you know, and I'm going to um, not only talk the talk, but, but walk the walk. So um, he definitely um, was a true activist and, I, and a real founder in the legalization movement. It really is. I think a lot of people, you know, associate a lot of that with Bob Marley. And really, a lot of it was actually your father. And um, a lot of it, looking back, your father really was not shy about speaking out about these really kind of hard pressed issues, even at the time. I mean, in the 70s, that's when the war on drugs started. In the 60s, essentially, you had your government pretty much set everybody up for the war on drugs. And uh, your father was there to see all that and see it with his own eyes. And um, he was a big proponent of just sharing the truth. And um, I think, you know, it's still you know, I think what he did back then still makes ripples today and especially with the music. And I think everybody knows even with, you know, Bob Marley may have taken more loving tones, but I think it still affected Bob Marley and he still had to kind of speak through his music of the things that he saw. And, uh, you know, if your father was around today, I think it would be a whole different world we live in of just, you know, having somebody who's seen it in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And it's never really changed to the 2020s. We still live by some some of the same bullshit you know that was going on back then no definitely definitely he he um you know he within, there's a song that's called bush doctor and he sings about um not only the medicinal benefits he's talking about it you know it, it's good for asthma it's good for glaucoma um he said it could build up a failing economy you know he also recognized that you know, in the song Legalize It, he recognized that lawyers, doctors, and judges could get away with smoking it as part of like this upper elite class, but it but it wasn't the same for um, everyone else and particularly people of color. And, and that was in his music. And it's still very prevalent. It's, it's you know, the definition of the war on drugs. It's, it's mm -hmm. like the epitome of what we have experienced here in the United States and really internationally. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, we just had David Crosby on our show actually last week, and it's so interesting to start to dive into the 60s and the 70s and actually to speak to people who are around during those times and very integral parts in that movement. Um, and I know your dad would have been the same way. So it's really cool to be talking to you. And then as well as shifting into your brother's story, I know he was inspired by your dad and he was also a musician as well. Do you want to tell us maybe his backstory and then kind of what happened? Definitely. Um, Jawara was um, a father for a musician, an activist, and a follower of Rastafara. You know, for us, the plant um, is sacred. And I, you know, people ask my ask me like, well, who, who doesn't smoke in your, in, oh, who smokes in your family? And I'm like, the question really is who doesn't smoke <laughs> in my family? And I have a big family. <laughs> but I'm the youngest of 10 with, I don't know how many nieces and nephews, you know? And so, um, you know, the, the culture is, is really deeply embedded into our existence. Um, and so when Jawara, um, you know, consuming cannabis was really just a part of our lifestyle. And so um, in 2013, uh, Jawara was arrested uh, for cannabis possession. Um, it was Father's Day weekend in Bergen County, um, New Jersey. And um, he didn't have a hearing until uh, three months later. It was September of that of that year. So he sat in jail for three months, um, just not knowing, you know, what the charges would be and what what um what he would be facing. Uh, he also shared that during that time he was incarcerated with like a 17 year old who couldn't make a hundred and fifty dollars bail, wow. you know, um, over an ounce of weed. Um, and so, you know, that really showed me how New Jersey and this particular county is really a prison or economy. You know, they had bail bondsmen on every corner. It was um, it was kind of ridiculous. And uh, honestly, when Jawara first was arrested, I just was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is ridiculous. But I felt like it would be something that would be behind us. Uh, you know, we'll right. go to court, whatever, you know, charges get dropped. I don't know. But I didn't really think that it would affect us in the way that it had. And it wasn't until the hearing in September um, where, you know, we all came down. My mom was there as well. And we came to support him. And we heard the prosecutor say, um, that they were offering a 20 year plea. Um, and that's when we, our mouths dropped and it was like, okay, this is, this, this is serious, you know? Um, and so they also offered a $200,000, um, bail. That's what they said it as a $200,000 bail. And, um, we just were devastated at, at that moment. Um, fortunately after three months, um, three more months, December of that, of that year, he was able to make bail. Um, and at that time, um, he was told by, you know, his lawyers and the prosecution that, you know, 20 years, you, you probably should take the plea because if this goes to court, you know, it's going to be a whole different ball game. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, he kept going back and forth from Boston to New Jersey and, going through pre-trial motions, kind of um, fighting, you know, we were torn between really fighting for what we believed in and also uh, being made a, a, an example of, you know, we knew that New Jersey had this, you know, this system that they didn't really care. You know, they didn't really look like twice about how, you know, this, their 
their system affected families or your beliefs. And so, you know, you kept going back and forth and first it'd go from 20, then to 15, then to 10 years. Um, and then finally they offered five years and he kind of expected that, um, or was told rather that, you know, it's five years, but you'll probably only serve, you know, a, a year. Uh, you've already served, you know, several months. So you'll, you'll probably get some time served and, and then it'll be behind you. So you, you probably should take this plea. And after three years, that's that's what he did. He decided to kind of take the plea. He didn't want to be out of the lives of his four children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in 2016, December, he took the plea. And then in January of 2017, he turned himself into Bergen County Jail. Um, he, you know, he he would call often and, you know, tell us to, you know, read Bible verses to his children. Um, he was always singing in there. He would, you know, I think really for my mom's sake, he would always say like, this is like camp, you know, <laughs> just to kind of keep her strong, you know, yeah. any mother <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> wants to kind of see their, their, their child in, in good spirits. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, he did confide in, in me and say, like, it's time for me to get out of here, you know. And um, a month after being um, incarcerated, um, my mom calls me um, frantically. She has a surgeon on the phone and she's like, it's it's Gamal. That's what we called him. She's like, they're talking about Gamal. And the surgeon um, says to me, he says, we have to um, perform a life saving medical procedure on, on your brother and, and your son. Um, do you guys authorize this, this, um, procedure? And we didn't really know what had happened. Uh, and then they told us that Jawara had been attacked by another oh, enemy. Um, and so we authorized the procedure. Um, we immediately hopped on a plane, flew to New Jersey, um, Hackensack medical center. Uh, when we got there, uh, they told us that we actually didn't really have the right to see him. Um, and we had to like call the jail and, and let them know that we were here. And honestly, I know that it was because of my father's name, which is why they, they made an exception. And uh, we finally were able to, to visit him. He was in the surgical ICU. Um, he had uh, tubes down his throat. He had a neck brace on. He um, His head was shaved from the from the procedure, his law, half of his locks were gone and he had a handcuff on his ankle and he was surrounded by correctional officers. At this time, he was pretty much unconscious, yeah. um, not a threat to, to anyone. I never really was a threat to anyone. Um, we had fought to really uh, see if we could get the, the handcuff removed. Um, he was fighting for his life, you know, at this time. And we was like, this handcuff isn't really helping. I'm sure it's yeah, probably really. doing more damage than, than, than good. No. And the hospital told us that the prison has hierarchy over the, the, over the hospital. Um, and, you know, we had never been encountered the, uh, the criminal justice system. You know, although we had this belief and practiced um, faithfully, we, this is not so we weren't in and out of the criminal justice system. And, yeah. and to think that uh, other families would have just been turned away, you know, they wouldn't have been able to kind of see their loved one. But we were able to kind of uh, stay there and, and, and fight and support him. Um, but they kept trying to, to kick us out. 
They, uh, you know, at a time when my brother really was fighting for yeah, really. his life, um, they were just, you know, we were bullied often. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, okay, you got 50 today. You only can come for, you know, 45 minutes, just one visitor. And, um, you know, one time I came in and they was like, well, you hurry up, hurry that your time is going. And I'm, and I'm like, why? And you could tell that it was just out of just control. There was no, you know, they already were lenient in one hand, but it was just like, I just, someone just wanted to kind of just bully us in a way. And it's, it was sickening to mm-hmm. think that, you know, they didn't really see us as human at that point at all. Um, yeah, really? My brother stayed in the ICU for, um, for three months. Um, actually, he, he was in there for a month left and then went right back for another two months, literally just fighting for um, his life. We ended up bringing him to Boston after those three months uh, where the care, although he was in you know good hands there, we realized how much better Boston is known for their hospitals. Um, he, the care was in Boston and um, he ended up staying in the hospital for almost two years and wow. uh, still really unable to do anything for himself, um, unable to talk, unable to, to walk. He had suffered a traumatic brain injury, unable to really communicate. He was learning how to do simple things as just like hold eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, those first three months after the injury, he was in the ICU. So, you know, vital signs. He was just learning how to just have a regular heartbeat, have yeah. regular blood pressure, breathe and, and be stable. Um, but he fought through that. And, and, we, and I know that it's because we were able to be by his side why he was able to get through that that point, and he continued to really fight for us and his and his family. Um, we eventually then took him home. Um, we didn't want to put him in a nursing care; that's what was recommended, and um, introduced cannabis, you know, into into his into his care and giving him tinctures. And one of the things that's actually quite um, quite funny is that, you know, muscle memory, something quite amazing, you know, he wasn't able to do all of these things, but I would give him a vape and I kid you not (laughs) inhale it and he could hold it in and he could blow it out his nose at times. (laughs) Um, You know, it was this remarkable um, experience that we shared and we introduced tinctures and it really wasn't until we were able to kind of introduce cannabis into the, his regimen where he actually spoke for the first time. Oh, wow. You know, That's he incredible. actually, um, I kind of just looked at him one day and he just looked really alert one night. And um, I just walked over to him. I was just like, you know, can you say Niambi? Can you say my name? And he just was, you know, kind of said it really slow and just was like, me, um, B. And I was like, oh, <laughs> And my mom, um, who lives on the vineyard, I live in uh, Boston, but really was a part of his care as well. She was watching on the camera. So she really got to kind of see, share that experience um, with us. But I quit teaching. I, I mentioned that I was a Boston public school teacher. Um, and I quit and I dedicate. I knew that from the moment he was injured, I knew that my life was profoundly changed. It, it, I had a new purpose and it was really to advocate not only for his health, but for justice for him. Um, the person that did this was was eventually charged. Um, but after um, kind of years of staying with me, maybe a year of staying with me in a year and a half, um, unfortunately, Jawara just um, fell um, victim to, to really the, the injuries and, and passed away. 
Um, and so uh, shortly after that, we we launched the Justice for Jawara initiative uh, under the Peter Tosh Foundation. And um, I've continued to kind of share his story to have people understand really what, uh, why um, the effects of, of cannabis prohibition and why we need to have criminal justice reform because we hear all this, these jargons, these terms kind of thrown around in everyday conversation and, and activism, but how it affects families, people don't truly understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it's, it's just really important that I continue to, to share his story, although very difficult to share. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's something that I'm very passionate about and my family is very passionate about. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. Yeah, I had really. goosebumps listening to you tell the story. And when we watched the video, the same, same feeling. Um, I, so many thoughts came up into my mind. You know, I had so many emotions as well. Like I was angry. I was sad. Like I was upset. Um, one thing I, I've, we have lots of questions, but maybe like the first thing, you know, did they ever, did the jail ever hold any accountability for what happened or was there anything on their end or is it more just you know, against the guy? Um, so we had to wait for the criminal charges, um, to kind of be, um, um, filed and then the guy to be charged and convicted. And, um, that eventually happened, uh, probably in 2018, uh, 2019. And then we could fi file the civil suit. So we did file a civil suit against, against the jail and then COVID kind of hit and just, New Jersey is already slow, so yeah. now they might as well be going backwards, oh, to be man. honest. And you're still um, dealing with it now, however many years yes. later. Jeez. Yes, yes, we are still still dealing with it now. And um, so I, I truly try to let go of the things that I, I can't control. We, you know, talk to the lawyer often and just gives us updates on things and wherever we can, we can help. Um, we do, and I try to support my mother, and, and which is very different for a mother and a son, you know, and a child. Um, and so I just we continue to support her to just focus on the things that we can control, you know, sharing the story so that other families don't have to go through what we've, we've gone through. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the strength it takes to, to talk about this over and over again. And, um, you know, so really, you're incredible. Uh, you got incredible strength, and I, I admire your perseverance and your passion, and and really the love you have for your father and, and your brother, and and everybody else that's involved with this, and the cannabis plant, and um, the black community, and everybody. Um, let's dig into some of this though, because you know some of some we have, we have discussed this a few times on our podcast, and um, there's a lot of like glaring stats that I think people really need to understand that this isn't just a story that we're sharing. This is absolutely a very real thing that's still happening today, and that. Our black communities are being harmed by the war on drugs that was started in the 70s, which is well over 50 years ago. And uh, we still deal with it today. And um, do you want to talk about some of those stats with incarceration rates and uh, how the war on drugs has impacted the black community? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, America is the incarceration capital, unfortunately. We have um, incarcerated, you know, 25% of the world's incarcerated while only having 5% of the population. And if you're black, you have a, um, you know, a one in, um, what was it? I forgot this in my mind, just went blank. I think it was um, one in five. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, thank you for mm-hmm. that. A one in five chance of, of being incarcerated compared to your white counterpart, which is like one in 18. Particularly when we look at cannabis, it's now evident that um, that both races or all races consume, you know, at no different rate. There's not a higher usage of mm-hmm. drugs amongst um, black communities. It's, it's the same. Mm-hmm. But our enforcement is only in one specific area. And unfortunately, you know, that's why we see everything that's going on, um, you know, on TV today with just uh, Black Lives Matter campaigns and and how it's really affecting us, you know, that there has to be a a change where um, we, we aren't just continuing to target black and brown families. Yeah, I think it goes back to this whole just humanizing everything in general and going back to the problem that you mentioned to start this whole thing off with. Uh, you know, with 5% of the world's population and we have 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And it's almost like this obsession with just putting people in jail and, and basically uh, ruining their life in a way. And I don't, you know, I love that you started this with talking about um, how, you know, jail and the prison system and just the criminal justice system in general is really just rooted in almost like finances. Uh, I've had my own family who have had um, problems with drugs and, and, and spent some time in, in prison and jail. And I can also attest that it's more about the money than it is about the crime. And these people just want their money and they really just, they'll hamper your life for the rest of your life uh, financially. And not even to talk about the, you know, the, the, the family um, concerns or issues that come up with your family or talking about the societal concerns or trying to get a job after you're incarcerated and all these other things that go into it. It's just unnecessary. And then to think about your brother that it was a nonviolent crime and he gets harmed that badly in prison. It's in just, prison. It's, it's like sickening. It really, it pissed me off. I was pretty pissed off after I watched the video and read more on the story. It really, it angers me because um, these things are very real. They've been happening for far too long. And uh, it's not something that it's semantics or anything. It's like the stats are real. The stats are there. It's happening. What are we going to do about it? Exactly. And it's really important that we continue to kind of share personal stories because we hear words like even prisoner automatically it dehumanizes someone or criminal, you know, it dehumanizes someone. And, and my brother was a criminal in, yeah. in the eyes of, of the law, but he was a human being. He, um, he, in our eyes, he wasn't a criminal. He was a father. He was a, a brother and he was, had a personality larger than life, you know, um, and very fun loving, you know, it's what is <laughs> peace loving is what his name actually means. Um, and so he, it's, it's, it's sad that um, um, that so many people aren't aware. You know, we had the privilege of not even being aware for, for many years just because we weren't involved in the system. And it really wasn't until we kind of hit it face on where I was uh, blown away, you know, even for my brother to make a phone call. It's, it's you know, really, this is a war on on, on poverty, you know, and and it's it's poor people that really are the ones that suffer. It's the yeah. ones that can't post a bail, the ones that can't afford, you know, a, a great attorney right. to yeah. really have the opportunity to, to even beat the case. Um, right. How many just, have to just accept a public defender to start and then just have no choice but to accept that 20 year plea right off the bat because they can't afford a lawyer or, or aren't given the, the advice or the courage to fight it, you know, and that's just, it's sad. You know, I, I've seen the same things from my perspective and, you know, granted, you know, we've lived a life of, you know, relative privilege. Um, it still affects everybody that touches the criminal justice system. And it, you're right. It does just dehumanize you. And it turns into this thing of just pay for play 
all the way through and fines and fees and you know you mentioned the phone call and like have, have you has anybody ever called somebody or talked to somebody in prison or jail it is like outrageously expensive and to expect people like that's how they communicate with their family and their children and it's it's like sickening it like truly is sickening and you know, if anybody's listening and like you're just now becoming aware of this, like share the story, like put this on your social media, like make everybody else aware of how this whole system works. And um, it's not just black versus white. A lot of it, it's like it's the criminal justice system is just built this way. And uh, it's hurting a lot of people's lives. Definitely, definitely. There's there's a part of us that has to all do our part, you know, and, you know, that was why it was really important for us to launch the Justice for Jawara initiative. Um, we're a 501c3, so just education is really the platform that we that we have, but um, really looking for other other um, nonprofits that really are a part of changing the, the regulations, 501c4s, you know, and um, they are a constant you know, on, on the front lines, you know, doing the work to make sure that certain laws change um, little by little. You know, here in Massachusetts, um, there's different organizations and activists just going uh, city by city to just legalize or decriminalize all drugs because drugs are really a health problem. It's it's not a it's not a crime. If you're addicted to drugs, mm-hmm. you have a health problem and we have to look at, you know, helping our 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 most um sensitive population, you know, mm-hmm. and, and really supporting individuals and supporting families and, and really looking at a different way to approach this. Well, that's what I really liked in one of your articles that I was reading before the episode as you were focused on, we need actual action. Like we can pass all this mm-hmm. legislation, but it's all just a bunch of like jargons and mumbo jumbo. And it doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. So if there's no actionable plan after that, then it's not going to help. I mean, even um, we've seen with like some social equity programs, like even in Colorado, like it's just nonsense. Like it doesn't actually mean anything or is going to help anybody, but it sounds good on paper. And we have to move past that and actually make action to work and change what's going on right now. Um, And I saw that you guys are also working with the Last Prisoner Project um, and Minorities for Marijuana. And those are some powerful nonprofits in the space that are kind of helping you guys move forward with this mission as well. Definitely, definitely. Last Prisoner Project is, um, you know, with them, we're we're really, you know, trying to get uh, cannabis prisoners out of prison, but not only just releasing them and, and having, you know, expungement or clemency, but then it's the wraparound services after they, they get out. It's support systems for their families and for their children, um, you know, allowing them to go get into summer programs. People don't understand something as simple as that is a, is a privilege that, you know, children end up in one direction, you know, <laughs> when they don't have, you know, idleness, you know, <laughs> when they're idle versus supporting them to, to kind of be active and, and in their community. And, and um, so it's, it's just really important that it's not just, it just stop at, you know, getting people released from prison, but really supporting them and, and minorities for medical marijuana, where we're also just working to make sure that uh, those that have been affected by cannabis prohibition have a, a, a means to kind of enter into the, the, the industry. So there we offer boot camps to really, um, you know, work on their pitch decks and, and work on just getting their, their, their organizations together to be able to, to enter into the, to, into the market mm-hmm. um, in some shape or, or form. And it's not just being a dispensary or grower, there's a lot of ancillary, uh, you know, 
two businesses that people can can get into to join into the cannabis industry. So that's where we do the work with minorities for medical marijuana. I love that. I think that's where some of the best work is made when you're just working hands on hands with people's ideas and their passions and you're just helping them put it into action. I think that's where that's where you change the world. And I think that's what we need right now more than ever is just people sitting down and and guiding and, and just, you know, offering that time and, and a helpful hand just to, to push things forward. Because um, I was thinking of, you know, how would it feel to grow up in a community knowing that, uh, you know, your friends are going to end up in prison or jail or or your father could end up in prison or jail. And, and what does that do to your mindset? You know, what kind of hope or, or dream do you have to aspire to when you're just trying to stay out of jail or stay out of prison? And I think exactly. that's something that people really have to put themselves in, their sh- in those shoes and, and understand that it's not just so easy to snap out of that. And it's not just, you know, you're going to go to college when you turn 18. Are you going to get a good job or go work to this place or that place? It's like a lot of these kids are just trying to make it to 18 and just get through school and not end up in prison. And, uh, and they, at the same time they may make it, but it may be their brother or their sister or their dad or their uncle that ends up in prison. And now their world's still turned upside down and it kind of changes your reality. And those are things where I think a lot of this movement today is trying to speak to, and we're trying to, to kind of wrangle this thing around to where it's, everybody does have the same opportunity and it's not just offering an opportunity and saying, there you go. It's like working with these people because it's the mindset um, a lot of you know, the psychological damage has been done over 60, 70, 80, 100, 200, 300 years. You know, it's, this is the stuff that has to get fixed today. And that's really what this movement's all about. Definitely, definitely. And it just can't be lip service. Mm-hmm. You know, all these so many states are are starting to launch social equity programs and, and they are falling very short. Um, you know, there has to be a way where you you reach the people that you've affected and um you know automatic expungement expungement needs to be something that is is universal from state to state because it's just statistically people that don't where the states aren't um enacting automatic expungement you know people aren't getting the services they need they're keeping those you know tarnished records and and not able to kind of transition into society and Mm -hmm. and be you know working citizens unfortunately and so uh, there's so many fronts, you know, that we have to tackle. Um, oftentimes, a lot of the funding is going to the police. Um, I'm sorry, we don't need more funding for the police. We need to to support these families. We need different mechanisms that really reach families and communities, and you know, community services um, that really allow for the upliftment of of communities. We don't need any more policing of communities. That's just not the way to go. Um, a lot of states are trying to to um, to really hit hard on on the black market with their with their um, with their new legislation. You know, they're like, okay, it's it's legal, but you know, if you're sell if you're still selling, mm-hmm. then you know that's a problem. The reality is that the people that are that are selling were the are the reason why it's legal today. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. you you wouldn't have a market for you know if it wasn't for the people you know that I like to call the legacy market, yeah. you know? People that have, you know, fought the fought and 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 been per- faced persecution, you know, really to mm-hmm. to help the people within their communities. It's a it's a plant and it's been helping so many people. Um I've sat in patient support groups, you know, where it was you know, 40 people of from age 21 to, to 90, all using the plant as medicine for maybe 30, 40 different 
ailments from you know things you haven't even heard of like brain pain and eyeballs <laughs> i'm just like what is but everyone saying that you know they were on so many different narcotics and now they just have maybe their allergy medicine and cannabis and it's been working for them uh so it's really important that we recognize that um reg- over regulation is not even the solution it's really um legalizing the plant in a more holistic way and making it accessible for all of them. I love that whole angle because that's not an angle that gets pushed enough of like, we're also soon to like, oh, let's legalize medical and then let's legalize recreational. And you're totally right. Then they come in the back door and they put limits on home grow and and they're still putting limits on like in Colorado, I think they just changed the limit to like a whole whopping two ounces you can carry as possession, but then you're still going to get charged with a crime. And it's like, that is just so arbitrary. I know people who smoke like announce like every couple of days or something. And I, it's just like these arbitrary rules are still, like you said, they're still harming our communities and still like putting people in jail or giving them a citation or just affecting their life for something that it's a plant. It is a plant, people. Well, and then they're also <laughs> putting like enormous fees on licenses. So then these people don't even have the ability financially to get into the market. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, it's, there's so much hypocrisy. It's, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, um, platforms like yours where we kind of talk about those issues are, are really, really important for people to understand because most of the people that are writing the regulations, they're writing it from a stance of misinformation. Yeah. You they know? don't even know. Um, <laughs> they, have, they have no idea. Uh, so it, there's, there's much work to be done. I think that I am proud of the progress. It's nice to see, you know, decriminalization. It's nice to see legalization, that that those are steps forward. There have been people released. There has been expungements that have happened, which are things that definitely celebrate. But there is continued work to be done. Still so much more work. What does the last Prisoner Project say? There's 40,000 people still in jail for cannabis-related crimes? Like, that's too many. (laughs) (laughs) That's too many, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for us to even like celebrate and, and, and smoke. And I don't even really talk about me smoking personally much anymore. And I'm not going to too much until it's completely legalized federally and not just uh, rescheduled to Schedule 2. I will absolutely not accept a Schedule 2. It needs to be completely descheduled. And um, and then while there's people still being arrested for it, I don't think there's really any reason that a lot of us should be celebrating. And even 420 this year felt a little disingenuous for us because it just doesn't feel right. You know, that we're still having to have this fight and there's still people being arrested and and there's still people sitting in prison for like 20, 30 lifetime year sentences that it's not right. And, uh, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to sit around and and sleep on it. Um, and I know you're certainly not. And I I really appreciate, uh, again, your strength to, to share your story of your brother and, and your father and just live up to, you know, um, really the expectations that your father set, you set some pretty, Pretty high standards and, and really for all of us, I think, of just having to look at this in a whole different light and accept the truth. Um, and the truth kind of hurts, but I think people need to hear the truth. But like how cool for you, like now you're doing like you're in your father's footsteps, like how proud of him, of you would he be like so proud? Yeah, definitely. It's He definitely guides me. I listen to his interviews. I'm actually his youngest child. And wow. so I don't really have memories of him. Um, but it's, you know, his music and his interviews and, and everything that I, and the stories that I use to really guide me on this path. So um, we, the ancestors are with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. I, uh, I feel like you should hear this too, but like reggae saved my life. 
And uh, it's a story we tell often, and it's a story that was a time in my life. It was Reggae in the Rocks in 2014 here in Colorado, Red Rocks. And it was a moment that like truly changed my life and set me down this path to where you and I are speaking today. So uh, I'm incredibly grateful of your father and then your legacy and the legacy he's passed on to you. And um, that, you know, I had the opportunity in 2014 to experience Reggae in the Rocks. And a lot of the, the roots that he established in the 60s were still very prevalent. And, um, we had Steel Pulse and Israel Vibrations. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of Whaler, uh, you know, roots in a lot of their music. And it really opened my mind to um, cannabis in general. And one of the things I talk about there is it wasn't just one group of people celebrating it. It was like so many groups of people celebrating cannabis. And that's what ultimately blew my mind. You had like the reggae and the Rastafaris. And it was just like so cool to watch them. But then you had like the stoners. And then you had like, the old school like fish and the deadheads and then you had <laughs> yeah. like people who just left their corporate job that could have been like a doctor or an accountant or who knows what and we were all just there together celebrating it. and i realized in 2014 like this is life this is it this is what we should all be doing is embracing mm-hmm. life together and and uh and you know cannabis helped us all do that and so um, that's what i'm hanging on to for the future that cannabis can pull us all back together and uh, we can make something of us so Yes, it's, it's definitely a unifier, um, and it has that power. And reggae music truly does does have that power mm-hmm. as well. The two combined is, you know, definitely a spiritual experience. So I'm I'm really happy that you're <laughs> able to, to to have that experience. I may have been in Colorado in Red Rocks in 2014. <laughs> How crazy! <laughs> Um, I, I, I remember that we were there when I think it was Cypress Hill that had performed, um, and it was around 420. That's when we, we visited, um, my mom and I actually, (laughs) Um, and we just wanted to, you know, visit Colorado because, you know, it was legal at the time and the first uh, legal state. And it was just an amazing experience to kind of see the plant embrace as well as, um, the music. Um, and Colorado has awesome food. <laughs> the food is amazing. That's funny. Yeah, food, weed, yeah. music, man. That's been like the that's been the theme of our entire season so far. <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, one last thing before we wrap up the show. I know you also started a cannabis brand scene. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, real quick? Yes, it's it's still in the works. Um, it's very important that the brand um, upholds the integrity that we believe it should, you know, being a brand of, of my father. So it's seen by Peter Tosh and uh, 10% of the proceeds do go back to the Peter Tosh Foundation so that we can continue on, uh, you know, doing the work that my father truly believed is necessary. Is that in Massachusetts or where will that be? launched it's gonna it's 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 it'll be a global brand oh, cool. and so um, once we once we launch you know the location is still to be determined mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know definitely fine-tuning um the aspect of of making sure that it, it it stands the the test of time as well as maintains that integrity um which takes up takes some work to yes. do to, to do things the right way and mm-hmm. so we're taking our time with it um to do it the right way and, uh, and also, you know, as I mentioned before, we do have the Peter Tosh Foundation and, and that's at um, www.petertoshfoundation.org. People can kind of learn more about all of the initiatives that we have there as well. Yeah. And then you also have a museum. Where is that? Yes. The, the Peter Tosh Museum is in Kingston, Jamaica. It's oh, right cool. around 
the corner from the Marley Museum. So it's definitely uh, worth checking out. They're actually closed now. Unfortunately, uh, Jamaica's is in, um, you know, they have curfew and, and they're in quarantine. So not the place necessarily to visit unless you're going to a resort. <laughs> but but um, in, in the near future, we, we do welcome the world to, to, to visit and learn more about my dad. Very cool. I love it. Yeah, no, I love this whole thing. And I think uh, it's going to be a lasting impact on truly myself and Lucy, I'm sure, and, and a lot of our listeners. So uh, please keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we are extremely grateful for everything you do and, and do for our community. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. And, and thank you very much. Yeah. All right. One very last question. Uh, we are the Lit and Lucid podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a tough one. I'm a Scorpio. I can always be a little of both. You know? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, but I guess um, I, I could only hear my daughter say, like we joke around and say that we're late all the time. So. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right, Niambe. Well, I really appreciate it. This was a really inspiring episode. I'm sure everybody's going to be inspired by the story as well. Um, keep fighting the good fight and doing what you're doing. And yeah, we're looking forward to the future for you and can't wait to see the scene brand out, out in the world. Love it. Yeah. Real quick, if anybody wants to connect with you personally, uh, is there a good way to, to do that? Yes, I'm everywhere. Super accessible. Um, I mean, people can follow, find me on any Peter Tosh platform. And then I have my own, um, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook and uh, me on the Macintosh is, is it's very easy to find. I'm probably the only one in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> exactly. That's good to be. To be. Cool. All yeah. right, Neon Bay. All right, you guys, with that, I'm lit. I'm lucid. And that's it. Laters. Laters.